Hello and welcome to the LSAT Pros Podcast. I'm Graham Blake from LSAT Hacks. And I'm Steve Schwartz from the LSAT Blog. And we're here to answer your LSAT questions. So the first question we have today is about the GRE. The question is, the schools that are admitting students with a GRE instead of an, the LSAT, will they be admitting students who will not be able to pass the bar when they graduate? Is this correct? I would say no, but it depends on the, the student. Um, you know, if, if you're using the GRE to do an end run around admission standards and admit someone who would have, you know, really low LSAT score or low grades or something, then maybe, but it doesn't mean like per se that you've got a low score just because you were in with the GRE. That's a good point. I think that it's easy to make that assumption that someone who can't get into law school with the GRE, with the LSAT could get in with the GRE instead. But I do think that the, the premise of this question does have some grain of truth to it. I think a lot of the lower ranked law schools are opening up to the GRE in part because they want to take people who couldn't get the LSAT score that was worth it to the law school and the law school doesn't want to hurt their rankings. And of course, it is easier to get a higher percentile GRE score than an LSAT score. So I I'm definitely have a problem with the spread of the GRE to these other law schools. Yeah. Uh Again, I think I think it depends how they use it. Like, I think there's certainly a risk that they'll do an end run around it, but I don't know if we're seeing that yet. Do you know like what the stats are and like how many schools are admitting with GRE or anything like that? The numbers are constantly growing. I don't know the concrete specifics on the numbers, but it's definitely more than a dozen schools at this point. I think that once Harvard started taking GRE scores, that really did, did open the door to many other law schools following suit. But I think we have to look at what, why are they doing this? What are their incentives? It could be that they just want to open the door up to more STEM folks, perhaps, who had taken the GRE with the plan to go to grad school. But on the flip side, there are all these lower-ranked law schools that are really struggling to meet their overhead, struggling with the decline in law school applicants. And I think they're really just using the GRE as a way to get more people. But whether they're, whether they're the right people or whether they're the people who are capable of doing well in 1L or doing well to pass the bar, I think that's another question altogether. One note just on the GRE, I don't know if you heard about this, Steve, but um, the ABA recently like deferred or, you know, the last six months or so, they deferred on uh, making a rule change that would have made it easier to allow the GRE. So I think that sort of has like slowed the progression of all of this. And I haven't heard as much about it in the past little bit. I You know, that, that'll probably change if and when the ABA rules change. But have you heard much in a way of, you know, like new schools accepting it or did it sort of stall after that ABA thing? The headlines I see are, are all about more schools accepting it. I think in the absence of the ABA cracking down on this, they're going to continue to do so because it's kind of like it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. And if they're not enforcing it on anyone else, then there's not really a reason to avoid doing it for your law school as well if you think it could help you get more applications, get more tuition dollars potentially in the end. So that, that those are the only headlines I really see on this. Everything I see from the ABA is more kind of like they're just punting on the question. Like they're they're refusing to give a concrete answer on this in part because I think the law schools want the GRE and the ABA is ultimately looking to serve the law schools more than I think the individual law applicants. <clears throat> okay. Uh, so the next question we've got here from someone in the chat is what to do when you're averaging 18 to 20 out of 25 on LR and two to three of the questions you get wrong are easy ones, usually within the first 10. Not sure if it's mainly anxiety to finish 10 in the first 10 or lack of fundamentals. 
So I would say that, well, two questions. Like one, does this happen on both sections or is it just the first LR that you do? Because if it's just the first LR, then maybe you need to do like a bit of easy warm-up problems. Um, like maybe your mind just has to get into it. But if it's both sections, then it does sound to me like you're maybe trying to go too fast on the first 10. Like I don't recommend doing first 10 in the first 10 minutes if it causes you errors. Y your goal should be like perfection on those questions. So I would just slow down and take the time required. Um, though feel free to follow up if it, uh, that didn't describe how how you're getting those wrong. What do you well, think, Steve? This person, they're getting out of 25, they're only getting five to seven wrong. So two to three of the, two to, getting two to three wrong out of those five to seven is actually a pretty large percentage, I think. It's, it's strange to me that someone would get so many of the easy ones wrong and then get a lot more of the harder ones correct. And so if that's this person's situation, then I think that they might want, they might be simply overthinking those easy questions because they're doing fairly well overall on the harder ones. So I'd say maybe they want to just stop overthinking those easy ones so much. And I'd be curious about, about the timing specifically, like what's their pacing like? As you said, are they doing the first 10 in 10 minutes or are they giving themselves a bit more time? So I think five to seven wrong overall. There's not a major lack in fundamentals, but there may be some work to be done there in terms of more detailed review. Okay, so next question is, how do you find most of your students making and sustaining significant improvement in logical reasoning? Well, I think it sort of goes like fast and slow. The fast improvement is at the start and that comes from like the low hanging fruit, which is learning conditional reasoning, learning what an argument is, how to identify conclusions, learning what the question types are and how to do well in them and like big picture stuff like that, that you should always be continually mastering, but you will get like a big increase in uh, performance just at your first exposure to these concepts and learning about them. And then in the longer run, I think it comes from being very self-critical isn't the right word, but it's more just like you're always questioning, like, do I understand this as well as I can? And is there like some little thing in this question that I need to learn about and so on. I think it's a pretty good breakdown, Graham. I think that there's two different phases. This person asked about making improvement and then sustaining that improvement. So improving from scratch from the beginning involves simply building the fundamentals. And I see students doing that typically to start off with doing LSAT questions by question stem type. I think that's important because you have to understand the proper perspective from which to view the question. And then the proper perspective from there on how to look at the stimulus. But when it comes to sustaining improvement, you want to involve an excruciatingly detailed review of everything you get wrong, everything you have difficulty with, whether it is in the stimulus, the question stem, or the answer choices. And that involves those traps of encouragement towards the wrong answers and those traps of discouragement away from the right answers than maybe a confusingly worded question stem or an overly complex stimulus. Wherever it may be, you want to just figure out where exactly your problem areas are, write it out, articulate it, talk with a friend, talk with a tutor, talk on a forum, whatever it is, get it out of your head, because then you can really force yourself to see what exactly your problems stem from. I would also add that most of the people that I've seen like sustaining significant improvement have some sort of 
journal or notes or something like there. I don't, you know, it could be in a Google Doc, could be in a physical notebook, could be in a spreadsheet, but they do something where they're keeping track of what they're doing in some sort of note analysis system. Yeah, definitely some sort of LSAT mistake journal is really useful. I see students doing the same as well and getting enormous benefit from it, whether it's a physical Moleskin notebook or whether it's a Google Doc. I've seen it all and whatever it is, if it works for you, keep doing it. But don't only mark down your mistakes. Mark down everything you ever had the slightest shred of doubt about because if you guessed, if you were down to two and guessed right and got lucky on that, it could have just as easily gone the other way as well. So someone who's getting, let's say, a 160, maybe they're getting 20 or 25 questions wrong, but the, there's another five or 10 where they guessed and got lucky, and it could have just, just as easily gone the other way. And so I would encourage students also note those in the journal and return to them time and time again. So our next question is also from the chat. Someone asks, what is the difference between all of available LSAT exams in terms of vocabulary, difficulty, and strategies of the questions? If we're taking the LSAT this September, is there a period of exams that you would recommend? So I think people overcomplicate this. Basically, all of the exams are useful. The newer ones are more useful. So, you know, if you've got 83 versus 77, not a huge difference. If you have 83 versus 53, bigger difference. 83 versus 13, much larger difference. And generally speaking, the period of exams that's useful is the more recent ones, but you should also be saving some of the more recent ones in case you have to retake. So I would say you could go as far back as like 50 some and, uh, you know, use some of them for sections, some of them for time practice, uh, some of them for time practice and full prep tests. And then some of them in that range, you just save so that you can redo them. And in general, like it doesn't, it matters less than you think. And if you had nothing but LSATs one to 40 to practice with, but you really learned them well, I think you could also do fine like that. But since newer ones are available, that is where you want to, to focus on. I would agree on that. I'd say that if you're going for September, then maybe you want to start with exams 52 through 61 to learn the basics, untimed, building your foundation, just focusing on accuracy, then move forward to doing 62 to 71 as individual timed sections, then do 72 to 86 as full-length timed exams. And like Graham said, save some of those exams for later in case you need to retake. So maybe you do only the even-numbered exams from 82 to 86 or from 72 to 86, and then you save the odd-numbered ones in the event of a retake. But if you're going for September and we're in April right now, that gives you about five months to study. So you have plenty of time to do everything from 52 to 86. And if you are, are in the lucky position to be able to study for the LSAT full time, or you have 20, 30 hours a week, maybe you will even have time to do the exams from the 40s or 30s as well. And if you have a particular week area, like games, for example, doing the old games is, is enormously valuable and I would definitely recommend that. In terms of dif differences between different LSAT exams, the LSAT has, I would say, they've definitely evolved over time a bit, but not so much that the old exams are not perfectly useful. The differences are more subtle and more along the lines of what grammar I might notice, because we've looked at all these exams several times. But the more recent exams, I think, have slightly uh, more, more subtle nuances, I suppose, that you may or may not notice, but for that reason, even if you won't notice them, it's still worth it focusing on those newer ones. Yeah, and I would say that the best way I could sum up the differences are that they're less formulaic, I think, because I think people are studying more. 
and this has caused two changes. One, they've had to make the new test a bit harder. Just seems to be the consensus. Um, basically, the LSAT is just measuring your position within a group, and so if the group is studying harder and is therefore better at it, they have to make the tests harder to keep the group distribution accurate. But the other thing is, people were studying and you know just sort of like memorizing set approaches, and the test makers aren't actually trying to see if you've memorized stuff. They want to see if you've got the skill that uh, lets you handle difficult things. And before, when people weren't studying, if they just had like some formulaic stuff, but that was new to people, they didn't have any idea how to do it. And so only the people who are better at it got better. But if everyone started memorizing the approaches, they had to start shifting a little bit. You see this most often in logic games, where some of the newer games are just different from any other game that came before. They're still testing the same skills that logic games test, but you can't just rehash like a memorized approach to it. Exactly. Uh, the, the newer games require more adaptability and being flexible in your approach. The older games, especially those in the 30s that Graham and I both did a lot back when we first started coaching this and tutoring this exam, they were more formulaic. They followed more set approaches. And the newer games with these curveballs, these weird ones, they kind of harken back to the oldest games ever released in the first 10, 20 exams. And so that's why I mentioned going back to those old games. But I would agree overall as well that the LSAT has become more difficult over time maybe because of increased prepping. Yeah, and I've noticed like little things like on logical reasoning, say, with sufficient assumption questions, you used to be able to just take the conclusion, split it apart, fill the evidence in, and like formulaically, you would see there was some gap in that, and that would lead to the answer. On the newer LSATs, they don't do this as much. They still do sometimes, but they make sufficient assumptions like a bit more unique each time. Or... Uh, they started putting in like point of agreement questions instead of point of disagreement. I got one wrong that was like a really easy question because I picked something that people disagreed about, but the question was asking what do they agree about, which is like just a tiny change, but if you're going on autopilot like I was, then it can trip you up. So basically just a bit less autopilot, I would say, is the big difference. Yeah, the formulas don't necessarily apply as much as they used to. They're putting in more complex methods of reasoning in the stimulus, for example, that may require more actual parsing out, but you can't kind of go on autopilot with that. Yeah, I think that was a, I think that was good. So the next question here is, if you had to give one piece of advice to someone for reading comprehension, what would it be? I suppose my biggest advice on reading comp is don't take as many notes. I find the students who do the best on reading comp mark very little or not at all. And you have a severe time constraint. If you spend more than three minutes on your initial read of the passage, then you have less than then six minutes to answer all the remaining questions. And with an average of six or seven minutes per question, that's per, per, uh, for the questions overall, that's less than a minute per question, not very much time at all. And so if you take more than three minutes on your initial note taking and read of the passage, you really won't have enough time for the questions. So take fewer notes, minimal, maybe just mark a little bit in the margins if you're, if you're taking the paper exam. And then of course, going forward to the digital, things will change quite a bit. So, yeah, I like this question. My single piece of advice would be make sure you understand the passage, which seems really straightforward. But what I mean is I think a lot of people go faster than they should and think, like, I've got to get through this. I've got to get on to the questions. And they're focusing on doing the questions rather than understanding. But the problem is if you get to the questions and you haven't understood, you'll go slower on the questions. So if you optimize for understanding the passage then you'll know what it's talking about and you'll go faster through the questions. And often it doesn't take that much extra time. Like let's say 
it takes you two minutes 45 the way you regularly do it. And maybe if you did it and like fully understood the passage, it would take you three minutes 15. So that's only 30 seconds more. That's like a, a tiny percent of extra time on the passage. And this will let you go through the questions much faster and more accurately. So I would say just make sure you understand it. It's the number one error I see in students too. Like I find people just, when they come to me with RC questions, they just haven't understood what's going on. And so I think it's the number one thing that the section is testing. Why do you think it is that people so quickly move on to the questions, even if they spent three minutes reading the passage and they absorb nothing? I think it's partly just time pressure. Like you feel you've got to keep a certain pace. And I think it's partly the way we're trained to read in school where we can just sort of like skim stuff, get the gist. And that's like good enough for being okay at like a lot of classes. You know, you know the, the marginal, uh, how to put it. Basically you could just do sort of do so, so and do like fine in the class. And then to get like an a plus extra, you might have to do like 40 times the amount of work or something. Um, like really reading a bunch of extra works, really spending a lot of time in it. And the payoff may not be worth that extra effort. Um, and then you take that approach to reading on the L side and it just falls off because you actually do have to understand it extremely well. But the difference is, you know, to understand something in a course really well, you might have to read several books on the L side. You still just get the same 400 words that you've got to read better. So you can slow down and do that more carefully. There's one thing I notice a lot with students where they'll, they'll kind of just move their pencil along the page and they say that it keeps them more engaged with what they're reading. But I won't actually see them improving their understanding at all as a result of that time invested. It's like they're moving the pencil. They're maybe they're even like, like kind of silently like lip syncing what it says in the passage. But at the end, their understanding is not any greater. Do you notice that as well? Uh, you know, I don't work with as many students in person these days, but I do know what you're talking about. And I think it probably has to do with like how you're reading as in like you're reading it in order to have looked at the lines rather than do to have like thought about the lines. Yeah, I think it's that, that's kind of what it is. It's like if you've underlined or you've moved your pencil along that part of the passage, it's like a check mark. Like you've you've completed that. But you also want to maintain a certain pace. And so, or at least you have the, you have the desire to, it's kind of innate. We want to keep, know that we're moving along and making progress, but I feel like not all the information in the passage is of equal import. Like it's not all weighted equally or not all as, as relevant to what the questions will be asking about. I find that there's usually a key sentence or two that really unlocks it in terms of what is the main idea or where the author expresses their opinion. Yeah. I would agree with that, that like some things are more important than others. And that's part of where the thought comes into it, that you need to be thinking about what you're reading and thinking about the information. And some of it you can just read like as quickly as as anything. And then some of it you have to slow down and think about and think like, oh, this actually matters. And so I guess you kind of always have to have like a filter. Um, and it's more like, I don't know. If you were trapped in some room from one of those, like, I don't know, Saw or like some horror movie and someone gave you like instructions on how to get out, you would read those like extremely carefully and figure out like exactly what was said. Um, and that's sort of a way that you have to think about RC or if it was like a Sphinx's riddle where, you know, it can be very short, but you have to think about what's going on 
and think about what the key bits are rather than just looking at what was in front of you and have absorbed the words. I like your horror movie example because I actually thought of the opposite situation where let's say you're trapped in a room or like an escape room or like there's an axe murderer coming or something and you might be so stressed out that you skip ahead to step three before doing step one. Like step three is like open the door and leave, but step one was open the box that contains the key, but you're so worried that you don't even get to opening the key and then you have to go back and start over. I think it's oftentimes this, the situation that students find themselves in when they're feeling that severe time constraint. So maybe we yeah. can talk a bit about like untimed reading comp work just to understand the passages better. Yeah. And just a quick note about that. I would say that like people don't really ask me about reading comp passages because I think once you do have untimed work, like it, it makes sense, or at least it feels like it makes sense. And that that time pressure is a really big part of it. Um, untimed work. Well, one thing I like is a drill where like you take as much time reading it as you want and you've given the passage to a friend and they've read it too. And then afterwards you like, you put your passage down and they keep theirs up and you have to like describe to them what's in the passage. And this is just a test of like, did you understand and assess what's going on in there? Take all the time you need, but you need to be able to have it in your head to be able to explain it to someone without reference to it. Agreed. And I think that would also be really useful for logical reasoning as well. It's funny, even with a short paragraph of maybe what, like 50, a hundred words, like, there's still a lot jam-packed in there that students, once again, will go too quickly to the choices or the question stem before actually understanding what it says in the stimulus. So I see some parallels there. That's true. That's a good point. Because what you have to keep in mind is when you're looking at the answers, you need to have at least some of the text like in your head because you're not looking at the text, you're looking at the answers. You can't do both things at once. So you need to load the information into your short-term memory to be able to use it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, so the next question is from the chat. When I drill logic games one by one, I'll usually abide by the suggested time frame, but I, and I'll usually finish it on time on the first try. But when I'm doing a full 35 minute section, I get paralyzed even on some easy games, finishing at around 15 to 18 out of 23. All right, so getting paralyzed on easy games and that as a result, it hurts the accuracy rate. So. I guess I wouldn't necessarily feel like you need to go by suggested timeframes for completing logic games. It seems to me that you have to give yourself a chance to learn the basics. And if that involves doing it untimed just to focus on accuracy at first, that's what you should do. I think overall, any people have different pacing, people have different areas of strength and weakness. And so I wouldn't match yourself to some perfect way of doing it. There are, to be fair, some easier games and harder games. I think that, for example, Test 58 Game 2, with I think it's Volunteers, that game can become an easy game that you can do in six minutes ideally, but then there are super hard games like the CDs game from Test 31 Game 2 featured in Legally Blonde that might take 12, 13 minutes or more, and that's perfectly fine. So these, these suggested timeframes, they're only averages of what students might do under ideal circumstances, even given the difficulty of a particular question. but. I wouldn't match yourself up to that and feel bad if you're not if you if you if you are falling short. Yeah, so I would say, um, if you're getting paralyzed, it sounds like it may be an anxiety issue or like putting a lot of pressure on yourself issue. And what I would focus on is like what's causing the anxiety, and what can you do about it. Like I think it's partly like just reframing things. Um, one of the ways of getting anxiety is thinking like I just don't have time to waste here. But 
you actually do have some time to, well, not exactly waste, but, you know, to just look back at the stimulus, to, like, breathe, to, or surround the stimulus to rules, um, and just pause and think. You have time to do all of that because, you know, if you get paralyzed and just zone out for three minutes, then that's a massive waste. If you can take 15 seconds and avoid that, then you've saved yourself a lot of time. The other thing is, like, all the questions are worth the same as any other question. So if one question is just giving you trouble, then, like, well, whatever, just get past it. Come back to it at the end of the game or something. It's not a big deal. Um, the more you can think to yourself that, like, whatever is causing you stress in logic games is not a big deal, then the easier it can be to avoid that from happening. Graham, what do you think about this idea of timing individual logic games? I don't love it because... For me, on a section, like I'll go insanely fast on some games, which gives me time to go slower on some other games. So, you know, if a game should be done in like, uh, I don't know, six or, well, I guess it depends. You know, if, let's say you've got four separate games and then the timings given were like six, six, 10, uh, 13, that would actually be fine. Like if you were hitting those individual times on each of those games, then that's actually correct. It's just, I think there'll be more individual variants. What, what I think is definitely wrong is someone like trying to go for like eight and a half on every game um, or, you know, splitting it evenly because on some games you go faster and some you go slower. He's talking about specific timing suggestions, I think based on the difficulty of the game, which are like somewhat more useful. Um, though I still think for timing work, it's more useful to do whole sections and just try and like not worry so much about specific games and take the time you need and seek out efficiencies everywhere such that even on easy games you're going really fast sorry not even on easy games meaning that you know you don't pat yourself on the back just because you get the questions right if the game is easy you want to go as fast as you can but without struggle if that makes sense so in other words on the easy game maybe you can hit it in five on the harder game maybe it takes you 12 and that's fine yeah, and if you're having trouble with games timing, maybe start off timing them at 45 minutes or 50 minutes and then gradually reducing the time down to the 35-minute mark, maybe a minute or two at a time, maybe five minutes at a time. But yeah, I also don't love this idea of timing individual games, even with the knowledge that some are going to be harder than others. I think that, as you said, Graham, full-length, full, full four-game sections are designed in a way to be, to be completed ideally in a 35-minute mark, but they're a mix of easy and hard. So I think that 6, 6, 10, 13 for the four games is reasonable, or maybe it'll be a little bit more even than that, but I still wouldn't recommend timing yourself to individual games, whether it's some benchmark or whether it's just the standard dividing by four to get 845. I th think that's a recipe for burnout and frustration. Start off just learning the basics, do them untimed, then gradually introduce individual timed sections again, starting maybe at 45 minutes and working down from there. Yeah, I don't think that's a student's issue, though, because it seems like they're doing pretty well on general timing, and it just sort of falls apart in a section. Let me look at the question again. Because I And I think, you know, when they mentioned seven-stage time frame, I think that's based on the game difficulties. Yeah, yeah, I do think it's based on the game difficulties there and getting paralyzed on easy games. But again, like we said, I think that these easy games, you don't need to try and match the benchmark. It's a place to get to with time, but I wouldn't overly worry about it at the start. And again, obviously looking at explanations, redoing the games will help shore up any weak conceptual areas you might have there. 
that does hit on a good point. Like if you're doing a new section and you're like, well, this is the first game, so it can't be too hard. Oh crap. Oh crap. Why am I going slow in this? Um, no, don't beat yourself up on that. Like definitely take the time required, um, to, to do a game because it's always better doing it that way than panicking. Yeah. Fair enough. All right. So the next question is though. I'm really happy that my scores are coming out in the fifties to high eighties. Not sure what that means actually. Uh, since my first LSAT I took in February was 149, so that's a huge improvement. How should we factor in our guesswork? I feel so guilty when I guess on five and get two right. That makes me question if I deserve the score I'm getting. So I think there may have been a, a typo here of some kind. Maybe they were saying the scores are in the the 150s to one, to high 160s, maybe. But or maybe they were saying they were progressing from exam 50 to. Oh yeah, 80. oh that could be it. Yeah. Maybe. Oh wait, no, high 80s. We're not those. Those. Yeah, are I'm not, not even sure what that means though. Um. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, but there's, uh, their scores are in, the, are in that range, not the prep test numbers are in that range. Like, you shouldn't be happy just because you're doing more recent exams. I mean, that's that's nice, but you can buy those books pretty easily. So I think they're saying more just about their, their scores. Are, their scores have improved from the 149 and how to factor in guesswork. I kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier. I think that really you should review everything you got wrong plus everything you had difficulty with, even if you guessed and got it right. And so... Be happy with your scores, whatever they are, because those scores, if you're properly simulating test day conditions, they could well reflect what you'll get on test day. At the same time, though, those questions you guessed on and got right, they're still well worth reviewing. Yeah, I, I just don't think this is a big issue. Like, if you guess on five questions and get two right versus, like, one right or none right, like, that's what, at most one scaled point? Two? It's just not that, not that significant. I mean, for most, you know, there are, there are a few cases where, like, if you get a 163, then you're below the median. If you get a 165, you're above the median, and it matters. But in most cases, people are, like, expecting a range. And to have a scaled score move up by, like, one point, like, eh, it's, like, not that, it's not that meaningful. So I wouldn't worry too much about the guessing unless, you know, you're guessing on so many that you have these wild swings of scores. But at the range that they're talking about, I just don't think this guessing thing matters and like worrying about whether you deserve it. Like, yeah, you do. Um, because like it could go that way, it could not go that way. And you you get what you get. And most of it was based on how you answered on questions you actually attempted. So that's that's what goes into deserving it. Yeah, I think, I think the deserving, it's not even really the right question to be asking. I think the more practical question is, how should I prep if I'm guessing a lot, given that things could easily go the other way on test day? And so I think that's where we talked, as we talked about earlier, this idea of the mistake journal, also including whatever you've guessed on or had trouble with, and just reviewing those questions more to to ensure that you will, things will go right on test day. Yeah, but I think they're asking this because like they feel kind of like guilty or they're just I don't know that they're having like some self doubt about it. So yeah, I think they don't need I to doubt say. themselves on that. Agreed. Yeah. Exactly. So, during a timed exam, or the actual exam, how do you recommend not getting frustrated and stuck on certain logic games? When going through the logic games with you, I'm, that's referring to Steve, I'm able to better understand them, and I wondered if you had any tips or suggestions for maintaining that sort of calm and collected headspace when taking the actual exam. Yeah, so I think this student was saying, basically, things are easy when they're with me, but then on their own, they have a bit more trouble. And that's that's normal. I think when working with any LSAT instructor who can kind of 
hold your hand and show you the way during a session together, that's natural that things will go more smoothly. And so on your own, if you're having trouble, that's okay. It's normal. And so in that case, save a running list of all the questions that you had trouble with, and we can go over them together next time. Or you can go online and look at explanations, or again, talk with a friend, a study group, a tutor. It's normal. I think if you're getting frustrated or getting stuck, just know that where you are now is not where you'll ultimately end up. You can improve this. The LSAT's like a foreign language, and so it's natural to have trouble with it at first, especially on logic games since they are the most unfamiliar at first. So maintaining a calm and collected headspace on the other end, I think that comes down to a variety of techniques, one of which is mindfulness or focus training to kind of keep your head and know that you can skip things and come back to them later if you need to. Yeah, I think there's two elements here. One is like the underlying skill and two is dealing with the frustration. Because sometimes when we're doing something we feel frustrated by it, it's because we're not as good as we ought to be. But then other times we just get frustrated by it because of the like just how the situation is. And I think it's important to distinguish these things. Um, so on games, sometimes you're frustrated by things that if you were to review that game and redo it and like really look for all the intricacies in it, intricacies in it, you would raise your skill level such that you wouldn't be frustrated. Um, and that's a large part of removing frustrations. Uh, I remember there was a situation where I was like doing some internship abroad and I just really didn't have that much to contribute. And I said like, I sort of felt like imposter syndrome and then someone said like well that wasn't really imposter syndrome you were just an imposter i'm like huh yeah come to think of it i never really had imposter syndrome at anything later where like i actually felt like i was learning the thing itself um but then i had this constant malaise doing this other thing where like i had nothing to contribute so that's like that's number one just getting better at the underlying thing and it, it makes sense to like being with the tutor it is easier than when doing it but then the second thing to know is that even when you get to like the peak of skill it's never frictionless doing logic games. They're still, at least I still find them like tense and stressful, even though I can routinely just sort of like overshoot the section, get everything right and finish early. But I don't always do that. There are times when like I will be slower than the section, I'll make mistakes. And there are times when even when I'm overshooting it, I still feel stressed in something. So the other thing to know is that even if you understand something extremely well, there will still be stresses on logic games because it's just pushing your short-term working memory to the brink. And so give yourself permission to have like a question be hard and skip it or give yourself permission to look back at the stimulus and think like, did I get everything here? I keep saying stimulus, look back at the rules and think like, did I get everything here? Is there something else? Give yourself permission to like skip a game if it's got you totally flummoxed. Like I don't do this often, but I do do it occasionally. And it, like when I do do it, it's very important that I do because if I don't, then I'll just be spinning my wheels. And so, and just sort of constantly be on the lookout and think like, was I feeling stressed here because I didn't know things as well as I could? Or was it just like that the game is somewhat hard and anyone would feel stressed and it was normal to feel stressed and so on. Because like for a more specific example, it's very common for me on like question three of a game to think like, oh, this is just sort of hard right now. I'll do other questions. I'll learn more about the game as I do them. And I'll come back and question three then becomes much clearer. So hopefully that made sense that there's those two different things and you have to try and figure out is this frustration just the intrinsic thing 
in which case you need to like just sort of work on how you frame things and it's normal to have troubles or is it that i need to actually work on improving my underlying skills i think that's a great distinction graham because someone could get flummoxed or be stressed out because there's something they don't truly know or just because things might seem unfamiliar at first and so if it's the former if there's something you don't know maybe you're not really proficient in dealing with a complex rule then like the, the, those games in the 50, 51, 52, and 50, 50, 51, 52 covering this and that, but not both or either or, there were some tough conditional sequencing rules there. And if, if it's your first time seeing it, obviously it'll be tough, but you can break it down and learn it. And if you learn it now, then next time it won't give you trouble going forward. Kind of like you wouldn't want to be reinventing the contrapositive on test day. You want to have done it many, many times before so that it becomes second nature. So if there's a kind of logic games vocabulary or phrasing that you're not familiar with, then just acknowledge that you haven't learned that yet and do a bunch of games that contain that so that you will learn it going forward. And if on the other hand, it's something that seems totally unfamiliar and new, then acknowledge that it happened, maybe skip it and come back to it later. And of course, if you're doing practice tests, then just try to do lots of unfamiliar games like the rare games or the curveball games so that you'll be accustomed to being in those difficult, unfamiliar situations, and you can still maintain a handle on them. Yeah. So next question. Someone says, when I'm reviewing wrong questions on LR, I'll usually match up my blind review against Graham's explanations. Many times, Graham was able to see something I didn't, although I had gotten the question right. What exactly should I make of this? I would say that LR, in particular, is an extremely deep section or sorry it has a lot of depth is a better way of saying it that like there's a lot of subtlety in the questions and a lot of little things and i think you know you can start getting questions right when you understand about 60 70 percent of them in a lot of cases but there's still that like 40 30 percent that like you haven't got um so how you should interpret that is just exactly that that there was something else in there that you haven't seen yet and if you were to start getting that about the questions then on some other questions where you previously were making mistakes you would start getting them right that's a great point. Yeah. Logical reason logical reasoning is incredibly complex and you don't necessarily need to see everything about it in order to get the question right. And maybe you're able to eliminate a few of the wrong answers just because they seem dumb to you at first. But Graham is able to explain exactly why a question an answer choice may have been tempting at first, but what ultimately makes it wrong. And so your intuition may carry you part of the way sometimes and that's great. But I think if you want to understand the exam on a deeper level, you'll come to see more and more of what, what makes questions difficult, whether it's in the stimulus, the question stem, or the answer choices. Yeah, I guess I would just finish by saying that the main thing you should make of it is that there's always more to look for, that it's very rare to 100% of the question. And by the same token, if you got a question wrong, it doesn't mean you answered zero. It's all just about pushing your understanding up from a lower percentage to a higher percentage and on average, doing that in a lot of places, and you'll get more LR questions right on average as you improve your average understanding level. That how much you understand the question doesn't necessarily make for getting it right or wrong. That's a good point. And I think that a lot of explanations might point out different things. Some will only point out one aspect of a question. Others will point out another aspect of a question. And you don't need to know all of those to get the question right or to even get a, a top score. I think that what grammar I might do when we walk through an LSAT question is because we have years of experience doing this and we can kind of see the patterns and 
understand the questions on a deeper level than the average test taker might. But you don't need to get all the way to our level to do well in this exam or get things right. I think you just have to know a certain amount. You have to know enough. But I think, like Graham said, it's not like an all or nothing kind of thing. There's shades of understanding all along the way. And at a certain point, you'll say, you know what? I understand it well enough to take the LSAT and move on with my life, unlike Graham and I who stick with this forever, I guess. Yeah, and also I should burst my own bubble here a little bit that like the fact that I pointed something out about an answer doesn't necessarily mean that you're wrong, say, if you had another reason that's also a valid reason because a lot of things have like more than one way, way of eliminating them. And when I'm doing a question, I don't think about all the ways to eliminate it. Even when I'm writing an explanation, I don't think about all the ways to eliminate it and just pick one. I just pick whatever comes to my head like the first time and on average that tends to be one that was like tempting for a lot of people but there's multiple ways and you, as you know if you look at an answer and you're like well this is stupid um then sh sure there's something else you need to see in the answer but if you look at an answer and say like well this is wrong for this reason and the explanation says it's wrong for a different reason it doesn't mean your reason is wrong and it doesn't mean that you missed something per se if your reason was in fact a good reason yeah, I think that a lot of what we do with explanations will kind of be like a post-test analysis. Like it's not happening during while we're taking the exam itself. There wouldn't be enough time to do all of that evaluation of every single aspect of the question. So the next question here we have from the chat, the Q&A portion. Is it a good strategy to time each question on LR before going to whole timed sections? My main issue with LR is time. I definitely would not time individual LR questions. I think that's a recipe just for burning out and driving yourself crazy. You have on average maybe a minute 25 per LR question, but some are easier than others. So I wouldn't get overly wrapped up on that. You want to be conscious of time, of course, but some tougher LR questions could take two or three minutes, even under timed conditions. There are certain benchmarks you might use, like doing the first 10 questions in 10 to, 10 to 12 minutes if you're aiming to complete the, the section and realistically shooting for a 160 or 165 plus, but no, I would never time individual LR questions. Yeah, I definitely also would not recommend this um, because just like with games, on some LR questions, you should be going faster than average. On some, you should be going slower than average. And getting good at timing is about developing that pacing so that you can see like, oh, this is easier, I can go faster. Oh, this is harder, I should slow down. Um, I think there's... I think it's counterproductive to time individual questions. And also one thing to keep in mind is that, you know, there's a lot of friction in like starting a timer that that takes just a few seconds of doing it and thinking about it. And if you're doing it in every question, you're taking up a meaningful percentage of your time for that question, administering that question rather than like doing the question. Yeah. I think it's um, hard to avoid looking at the clock. Yeah. If you want to, and not just that, like fiddling with your phone or your watch or whatever, um, resetting it like it it takes some time reaching for it picking your pencil back up it breaks the whole flow of going through a section yeah definitely agreed any other thoughts on it, lr timing yeah so if you want to ease into it i would say just either don't do all the questions or give yourself a bit of extra time and just keep lowering it um but one way or another don't don't time the individual questions i th oh actually one more thing about that i think as an occasional exercise, once you've already been doing some timing work, it can be very valuable to have like sort of a stopwatch type thing where you just, you check how long you did on each question. So you're not trying to do questions within a goal, but maybe you have someone like else timing you and you say like seven, eight, 
nine when you get to question seven, questions eight, questions nine, and they'll they'll hit lap on the stopwatch when you get to those questions. Um, and that will give you some idea of where you spent like 45 seconds, where you spent five minutes, and might it might start to identify like, oh, geez, like I spent way longer than I should have on that particular question. So I, I think there is like a place for individual lap timing as like a tool of giving yourself a bit of a better idea about what's really causing your time to drag but not as like a not as like a goal thing to go against the timer it's more just getting data so you can measure and manage um that yeah i think the lap timing was a great strategy i kind of started thinking about that too i guess the other thing you could do if you don't want to go to that level of depth with it is would be to simply mark off or flag the questions that you spent too long on and that'll typically happen maybe later in the section but mark off or star those questions so that you know when you're coming back later, oh, I really need to focus on this one, even if you got it right. The fact that it bogged you down for a while suggests that there's something to be learned from reviewing that one more. So the next question here is, and from the chat, I've gone from a 145 to a 159 so far, and it took me about six months to do so. How do I know if I've reached my peak? Is there such a thing? Well, first off, congrats on that score increase. That's that's huge, and obviously a 159 will open far more doors than a 145 will. Six months, that, that makes sense. I mean, I think a 14-point score jump is a lot, and so six months, you, you definitely earned it. As far as a peak, I think it's really hard to know when you've reached your limit. I think ultimately, if you're continuing to put in more time and your score is not improving, you have to kind of make your own personal decision. Have I invested all that I want to or all that I can in the LSAT, and am I better off moving on, focusing on other parts of the application, other things in life itself, because there is more to life than the LSAT, despite what I might think. So I'd say move on when you when you have when you feel personally like, like you've reached your peak, but also consider have you armed yourself with the best study resources possible? Have you invested in the things that you think could help you? If you haven't used all the books you possibly could have, or if there's a course or someone you might want to work with that you have been thinking about it but haven't taken the plunge and you think they might be able to help you unlock that next level, then consider seeking that out. Yeah, so my answers for this will be a bit disappointing, perhaps. Like, how do I know if I've reached my peak? I'm not sure. And is there such a thing? I also don't know. Um, Because this is extremely difficult to judge. If someone has been stalled for like three months at the same score, does it mean they can't do better? Or does it mean their methods have failed them for getting past that point? And I don't know of a way of knowing that. If you were looking at someone, say, playing tennis, you could have a coach like watch what was happening and give pointers and get someone through most things. And I think for most people, it would be hard to say that they peaked at something like tennis. For most people, the practical limit would be like how much they're willing to invest into it. The most people do after like a series of years, like to sort of stop improving at the game that they're playing, but they would probably recognize that they could improve with analysis, study, and outside help. With something like the LSAT, it's harder because everything's happening inside your head. So even when you get a tutor, like they can't really see what you're doing, and they can't see what you're doing in your study time. Like watching a video would be pointless because you're just sort of there with like paper in front of you. Um, so. It's, it's much harder to get an objective judgment about whether you have peaked and even whether the thing exists. Um, but I would say that if you're still learning new things, 
then you probably haven't peaked even if your score isn't increasing. Um, and if you don't feel like you're learning new things, if you just sort of are like grinding through stuff, then maybe you haven't actually hit your peak in that if you had a different method, maybe you'd improve. But you've certainly hit a peak with the method that you're doing. That there should always be this feeling of like, I know something now that I didn't know before. And that I'm putting these things into my intuitive knowledge so that I can sort of recognize stuff that I didn't recognize before. That's a good point. I think it may not always be about what your actual score looks like. Obviously, it does need to translate to a score in the end. But if your conceptual understanding has improved and you've pointed out specific things that you've learned since last time or since your earlier benchmark, then that may suggest that there may just be something else aside from concepts in terms of translating into test day performance, like maybe it's nerves or anxiety, something like that, something outside of the LSAT content that you need to resolve. But I do think obviously it is, it is a complex question with no easy answer. I think, I think that you obviously, you, you know better than we do about whether it's worth investing more time in this or not. Yeah, though it can be hard from someone's perspective to know like, well, should I invest six more months? Am I going to improve or not? So that's where it can be hard even for an individual to know. And I think you have to do this kind of analysis of like, am I showing signs of improvement that make it worthwhile? But and I would also say, to, so, sorry, go ahead. I would also say at like six months in, I would take like a two to three week break and just don't do the LSAT at all. Uh, sleep a lot, walk around a lot. Um, just do other stuff and come back to it. Part of what helps people in long study periods is that just like total break where it lets your brain sort of like assimilate some stuff and it will learn some lessons by the time you get back to it. And the only thing that really improves that is time and more specifically time asleep um, because learning sort of progresses by night's sleeps. And so if you get like 21 nights of sleep, three weeks where you're not doing the LSAT, it gives your brain time to sort of like work out some connections and then you'll have more stuff magically when you come back to it that's a great point i think that if someone's hitting a score plateau and they're looking for further improvements taking a break is definitely useful you want to make sure that the other areas of your life are all pretty solid because those if they're not right like sleep isn't right or diet isn't right then even if your conceptual understanding is good that may not be translating into time to practice test performance so that's one angle to look at it from the other thing is aside from the question of the peak in terms of just in general, whether you want to invest more in your studying, it depends on where your score is, what your GPA is, and what law schools you're looking to go to. Obviously, a higher LSAT will get you into better law schools or get you more scholarship money, but maybe you're okay with a more middle-of-the-road law school. And if that's the case, then maybe a 159 or 160 is enough for your purposes. And in that case, it might not be worth investing another three to six months, even if it could help you out in the end. Yeah, so thanks for listening to LSAT Pros. You'll find uh, show notes. Um, sorry, let's just do that one over again. Uh, thanks for listening to LSAT Pros and tune back in next week. So you can find me at lsathacks.com and on Instagram, I'm Graham underscore Blake. That's G-R-A-E-M-E. What about you, Steve? And so I'm Steve Schwartz at the LSAT blog. You can also check me out on the LSAT Unplugged YouTube channel and podcast. And yeah, feel free to reach out if you need anything at all. Also email lsatunplugged at gmail.com.